Welcome to Smarter Markets, a free weekly podcast featuring stories from the entrepreneurs and icons of commodities, capital markets, and technology, ranting on the inadequacies of our systems and riffing on ideas for how to solve them. Together, we explore the question, is capitalism in crisis, and will building smarter markets be the antidote? And now, here's your host, Eric Townsend. Welcome to the third episode of Smarter Markets, a weekly podcast that explores how financial markets could be redesigned and improved to better serve market participants and society as a whole. Smarter Markets is made possible by a grant from Avix Technologies. I'm your host, Eric Townsend. In the first episode, billionaire financier and veteran mining executive Robert Friedland envisioned markets which grade and trade commodities not only on their physical properties, but also based on how responsibly they're produced. Then in the second episode, Miriam Ayati expanded that discussion into a vision for tokenizing the entire commodity supply chain and using innovative new technologies to trace commodities back to their production processes after the fact. I thought these were terrific ideas, but I wondered how ready the commodity trading industry is to embrace change on the degree that Robert and Miriam are advocating. So I wanted to find a really big name in the world of commodity markets to run these ideas past in our third episode. It's hard to find a bigger name in commodities than this week's guest. Jeffrey Curry is the head of global commodities research for Goldman Sachs, and his reputation in the industry is unmatched. I'm going to start by asking Jeff how he's looking at the capital investment cycle for commodities in the context of carbonomics, the $1 to $2 trillion in annual infrastructure that will be needed over the next decade to reduce the global economy's carbon footprint. Then I'll move on to asking for his reactions to Robert Friedland's vision of grading and trading commodities based on how they're produced, as well as asking Jeff for his own ideas on how the design of the market could be improved. We will not be discussing live market prices or Goldman Sachs forecasts in this interview, but instead we'll give our listeners a rare access conversation about the bigger investment cycle topics in ESG and technology, and how Jeff sees commodity trading markets evolving with new technology and the important new focus on ESG. We'll also talk about the importance of collaboration between the United States and China for the market to get ESG right, particularly with regards to carbon policy. And it strikes me again how important of a role Singapore can play in these markets. So I want to discuss that again and tie it back in to the conversations that I had with Robert and Miriam. My interview with Goldman Sachs Commodities Chief Jeffrey Curry is coming up next. And now with this week's special guest, here's your host, Eric Townsend. Jeff, thanks so much for taking the time to join us. It's great to have you on Smarter Markets. Let's start with the big picture and talk about where we stand with respect to commodity investment cycles. For the last decade, commodities have traded sideways to down, but now there's $2 trillion plus of decarbonization, or what some people call carbonomics infrastructure spending, being contemplated. Now, Jeff, you can't build infrastructure without raw materials. So is the stage set for a new investment cycle in commodities? And if so, what are the primary economic drivers that you see? Absolutely. The pandemic has been a structural catalyst for a bull market in commodities, which is a stark contrast from where we were over the last decade. 
And I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, the financial crisis back in 08, 09 was about the instability of the financial system itself. So you had to have policy that was creating market stability, which does not is not conducive to strong commodity demand growth or bullish commodity markets. In contrast, the COVID pandemic was a social crisis, and policy has to be directed at social need, in which as you begin to redirect policy towards lower income groups, you end up with more cyclical demand growth as well as more commodity-intensive demand growth. And we think that was really the structural shift here that starts to create a more bullish outlook for commodities. And there are three areas that we're focused on. One is the idea of structural declines in supply. You know, this was a theme we call it the revenge of the old economy that we've been talking about you know, 20 years ago during the dot-com boom. It applies today. You know, the fangs have siphoned a lot of capital off of the old economy and commodities more broadly, such that they've been unable to grow the supply base. Throw ESG concerns on top of that. We had a 40% decline in oil capex during the first half of this year. That's going to have a significant impact on the ability to supply grow supplies going forward. The second theme that we think will be driving a structural bull market is the idea of policy-driven demand. Now, as you just alluded to, you know, the size of these infrastructure funds are extremely large. And it's not just what's going on in the U.S., which is only you know, 25% of the story. It's what's going on globally. And these policies are very synchronized. And there's three forms of these policies that we're focused on, and we call it REV, R-E-V, redistributional policies, environmental policies, as well as versatility and supply chain policies. All of these create substantial demand for commodities, even oil, that the stimulative impact on oil demand will hit us first long before we see peak oil demand. And then the third theme that we're focused on is you know, a macro tailwind, really driven by a weak dollar backdrop that creates this positive feedback loop between oil and commodities and the dollar, meaning weaker dollar pushes commodity prices up higher, higher commodity prices in turn fuel a weaker dollar. And when we get that positive feedback loop, as we saw in the 70s and as we saw in the 2000s, you know, it, it can lead to extremely high commodity prices as well as very weak dollar observations. So the bottom line, we completely agree that we're entering a new era on commodities and it's really you know, a structural bull market is what's likely to follow the V-shaped vaccine trade later on in 2021. Jeff, you mentioned ESG and environmental issues a couple of times there. Now, I've heard you and other experts talk about the need to put a price on carbon. Now, we're not talking about buying carbon, like buying CO2 to make fire extinguishers. So what exactly is meant by that phrase, putting a price on carbon? And why is it so important for the industry to figure out how to put a price on carbon? Because if we're going to deal with climate change, we need to figure out how to get it out of out of the fuels, out of the environment. And right now, we don't have any mechanism to create a profit-driven environment so that people will invest in these technologies. And without that investment, we cannot get the, the innovation required to solve this problem. Now, I like to go back to 
the war on acid rain, a very successful environmental policy. And at the center of that policy was a sulfur price. And this led to the creation of the catalytic converter desulfurization units, which ultimately solved the problem such that we're sitting here 20, 30 years later, the acid rain problem has been solved. So when I talk about, you know, a, a price on carbon is, you know, it's a negative externality, which what makes it difficult to create a market for it. But the bottom line is we could do it by, you can get a price of carbon in two ways. Either you put a cap on the amount of carbon emissions, which then creates a price for it, or you put a tax or, or another way, fixing the price and let the market determine how much carbon is removed from, from the from the environment. So there's two ways to do this, a tax and a price. It's just which one do you fix? Do you fix the quantity or you fix the price? But both of them achieve the same goal. Let's talk about what all of this means for the investment management industry. Commodities and hard assets generally have been out of vogue for decades now. We have an entire generation of finance professionals who are used to thinking about the investment landscape in terms of you know what's going to be the next Silicon Valley unicorn. So how do we transition from the next social media trend to actually investing in the growth of the real economy? Well, I mean, there's several ways you can do this. One is through direct commodity investments or investing in the companies themselves. The problem with investing in the companies themselves this time around is that the the headwinds created by you know, the ESG environment are going to make it very difficult for these companies to operate, particularly the energy companies. And then if we think about ultimately why would a portfolio manager want to own oil in commodities, one of the key reasons is that it's going to provide a hedge to diversify against inflationary pressures that you mentioned at the very beginning of, of this podcast. So if we're trying to hedge out inflation, what are the things that are in the CPI baskets? It's things like oil and copper and other types of cyclical commodities. So by owning the commodities themselves, the real assets that we consume in the real economy, they're going to provide the asset manager with the hedge against those inflationary pressures. Now, one thing I want to emphasize here that makes this time around very different than any other point in history is how low bond yields are right now and how big bond portfolios are. Because ultimately, what the asset manager cares about is the level of inflation versus the yield they have on their bond portfolio. You know, investment grade bond portfolios globally are yielding less than 1.95%. So we only need to get back, you know, up to around 2% inflation before these asset managers have a real problem. And when we think about how do they hedge that risk, there's really only one way to do it, but to own those things that go into that consumption basket that create that inflation. And that's things like oil and copper, real estate, and other hard assets that really make up the real economy. Jeff, I definitely want to come back to the issue of ESG and the difficulties of owning these commodity-producing companies in an ESG environment. But first, I want to expound a little bit on what you said about commodities as a hedge for inflation. It's clear that monetary policy is doing a lot of the heavy lifting here. MMT is gaining traction with politicians. Now, the old-school hedge against fiat currency debasement was always gold. But in modern times, you know, is gold still the best fiat debasement hedge? And how should we think about the choice between gold versus other commodities like copper, nickel, and cobalt, which are all needed in order to make the electric vehicle revolution happen? What's the better hedge against fiat debasement and inflation? 
Well, when we think about the word debasement, where does it come from? Back in the the Roman times, when currency was a basket of precious metals, they would debase the precious metals by adding base metals, hence where that term comes from. So they would add copper into a precious metal basket. So if you owned gold, it was the perfect hedge against debasement. Now, when we think about debasement of a fiat currency, it does not necessarily lend itself to inflation. Sometimes it can be debasement against a financial basket, like what we saw in the 2000s or in the 70s. The debasement of the dollar was against a consumption basket. But the key point here, gold is a debasement hedge. And it it does not necessarily imply that if you have debasement of the dollar, it's going to lead to inflation. Proof in the pudding was the 2000s. So gold, I like to argue, is a great hedge against debasement. Now, the debasement may lead to inflation or it may not. However, if you're going to hedge the consumption basket inflation, your best hedge are going to be the things that are in that consumption basket. If you're in India, gold is a big part of that consumption basket, so gold would be an excellent hedge. However, in places like the United States and Europe, other types of commodities are going to be better hedges. In fact, we find that oil is the best hedge against inflation. In fact, what we like to argue is equities are a very good hedge against anticipated inflation. Remember, equities are financial markets. They're driven by expectations on the future. So they anticipate inflation. Oil and commodities are what we call spot assets so that they actually price the unanticipated component in inflation. In terms of thinking about how gold stacks up, tips in gold, you know, they sit around number four in terms of being a hedge against inflation because of that you know, debasement that I was talking about. The reason why tips in gold are a little bit lower is that, again, gold's not so much in the, in the consumption basket. But also when we think about tips, tips hedge the maturity of that bond. Again, they cannot capture those unanticipated moves in inflation. And that's really ultimately what creates any type of significant damage to a bond portfolio. So once again, you know, oil and commodities are the best hedge. I just want to go quickly, why is oil, you know, such a great hedge against price movements in other commodities, other other goods? And it goes back to that oil dollar correlation. When we think about, let's take Barbie dolls, and you price Barbie dolls in constant Korean won, and we know that the oil price is correlated with the Korean won. So what does the dollar price of Barbie dolls look like? It looks just like the price of oil. In fact, you look at all traded goods and you put them together, the price of all traded goods is in dollars are highly correlated to the oil price because of that oil dollar correlation. And as a result, oil is typically going to be your best hedge against inflation. I want to come back to what you said about investing in companies that produce commodities in an ESG environment, because ESG has become a huge trend in investing. But frankly, I think the industry has yet to really translate the goals of ESG to meaningful tactics that will truly fulfill them. Because right now, the push is all to invest in all things green. So invest in Tesla, invest in other electric vehicle companies. That That's the big thing. But don't invest in battery metal producers because they're seen as environmentally undesirable investments. 
despite the fact that you can't build the EVs, it's impossible to have them without having the battery metals first. Meanwhile, the Green New Deal and carbonomics has become a big phrase lately. These feel to me like trends that have the potential to be as big in finance as, let's say, the, the BRICS economies or Chinese urbanization. But we can't realize any of these green goals without first mining copper to build the electric motors for electric vehicles and to build out the electric grid. And we also need to mine nickel and cobalt and the various other uh, metals that are needed to make the batteries for those electric vehicles. And those are all perceived as bad, 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 you know, no good in the ESG world. So how do we move past this confusion and truly realize the goals of ESG? I want to emphasize that none of these technologies that we're talking about are proven yet in terms of their ability to solve the climate change problems that the world faces right now. You know, I like to point out with, you know, the EVs, last year we produced 95 million internal combustion engines and roughly about 1.5 million EVs. So a huge ratio differential. And of those 1.5 million EVs, most of whom were PHEVs, plug-in hybrid EVs, which are really not pure EVs that solve climate change, only about 500,000 of them were BEVs, battery EVs. So you can see we're a long ways from solving this problem. Another way to point it, there's 5 million EVs on the road versus 1.3 billion internal combustion engines on the road. So we got a long ways to solve this problem. And I think the problem is rearing its head, whether if it was the fires in California or, you know, the locusts going across East Africa and into Pakistan, it was 100 degrees in Siberia this summer. I think you get the point. The question is how much time we have. It's a very difficult time. And the technologies I want to emphasize are not proven to the point that you could scale them up massively to replace the internal combustion engine at this point. And it goes back to my point, we need a carbon price so people invest in those innovations. So if I were investing in ESG, I want a basket of all these different technologies and it's, and it's gonna be a winner take all in terms which technology ends up being dominating in the long run. Actually, here's a point between Tesla and Apple, they consume 50% of the world's lithium market already today. And Tesla made 350,000 BEVs last year, which tells you how far we are in terms of a viable technology to solve this problem. And, I, and to, to really get at this, I want to go back and, again, bring up the, the war on acid rain. Again, a very successful environmental policy. It was global in nature. The sulfur blew across international borders, very similar to what we have today. And it had you know, phenomenal solutions. So let's, let's, let's dig a little bit deeper into it. And if we go back into you know, the 60s and 70s, you know, consuming no fossil fuels was one of the potential solutions back then. And then also the Americans and the Soviets, who you know were the you know the the dominant players in the world back then, were ignoring the problem. They ignored it until their forests began to rot. And when you have the Soviets and the Americans being the two largest lumber producers, this was a significant development. And once they began to focus on it, they started to create rules around how you solve the problem. And the problem today is we don't have the two largest players, U.S. and China, involved, and we do not have 
well-defined rules on how to deal with this. We have ESG that's being done through the investor community, which is a noble effort given the fact you don't have governments. But it's risky because you don't know what the two largest players, U.S. and China, are likely to do when they begin to adopt rules. And we go back to, it was 1979 that the Americans and the Soviets um, wrapped up in a nuclear treaty the rules around how to deal with, with acid rain. Um, and they were able to impose it on the Warsaw Pact countries as well as the NATO countries, which represented, you know, 70, 80 percent of the world back then. So it was an easy way to impose these rules. Now, the important point here is they did not know the technologies. By creating sulfur price, it ended up being a chemical company, BASF, that invented the catalytic converter that ended up solving these problems. So I, I go back to you know the, the ESG and these technologies and batteries and EVs. These are all different technologies that we're testing, but we don't still don't know which one can solve this problem. And I also want to you know talk about you know the difficulties of batteries. I like to point out. We have been working on battery technologies for nearly 100 years now, and we have not made substantial improvements in battery technology. I like that you point out, you put a chart of Moore's Law, and you put the achievements on batteries next to it. It's a fraction of what we've seen in terms of whether it's computing power, storage capacity, all of that has improved tremendously, but batteries haven't. What makes big shifts in batteries is has the different metals. As you moved through lead to nickel cadmium to lithium ion, those are the big shifts. So if I'm thinking about the, the carbon problem that the world faces today, there's two ways you solve this. Either you replace the oil with electricity and you get the battery technologies working, or much faster and quicker, you figure out how to capture the the carbon. The problem is, while we don't really know how to make battery technology work, we don't know how to actually store carbon. We can capture it. Storing it's a more difficult problem, which requires separating the carbon molecule from the oxygen molecule. I like to point out we're made of it, um, which shows you how strong that bond is, but it's a very difficult problem. But the main point I want to emphasize here we don't know the technology at this point. So investing in these technologies and putting all your eggs in one basket is a really risky proposition today. My recommendation is own a bunch of these different technologies. And also about these kind of problems, it's a winner take all. So you invest in one and one of these other technologies, let's say like green hydrogen becomes the more successful, lower cost one that all that investment in batteries and in EVs, you know, becomes, um, you know, ends up being stranded. So I think the, the, the lesson we can take from, from acid rain is the sulfur price created the incentive for firms to make an investments. It was a chemical company, BSF, who invented the catalytic converter that ended up solving the problem. So one, we don't have the sulfur price. And two, we don't know what that technology actually is today. Jeff, Robert Friedland shared a vision with our listeners for a new generation of commodity markets where commodities would be graded and traded, not just on their physical properties as we do today, but also on how responsibly they were produced with respect to ESG priorities. So, for example, in the future that Robert envisions, there would be a green copper futures contract in addition to the regular copper contract, allowing free market price discovery to determine what premium the market is 
willing to pay for copper that's produced under strict environmental controls. And the same thing would be true for, you know, green aluminum and green other commodities. Jeff, what are your reactions to that idea? Would that be practical? And how ready or not ready do you think the market is for commodities to be graded based on the ESG aspects of how they're produced? Well, we already have it in you know the form of green um, aluminium, and it does have a premium for it. The problem is auditing that production process. It's difficult to find somebody who's willing to take that risk. But what I want to do is actually take a step back. That's just one of the solutions. Let's talk about what the first best solution is. First best solution is we have a carbon price like we had the sulfur price with the acid rain. And ultimately that sulfur price embedded into it the ability to price low sulfur diesel versus high sulfur diesel or low sulfur fuel versus high sulfur fuel oil. So the best solution here is the carbon price because the carbon price will embed in the in the green copper. You don't need the audit. It will embed in the, you know, the brown copper and so on down the line. Now, that would be the best. So either it's a carbon price or a carbon tax. The next level before we get to the green market and in the brown market is the one that is that would be useful is to have if you want to follow the ESG blueprint that is being used in the equity world is that what you do is you segment your producers that produce this into two groups, ones who can produce green copper and ones that cannot or produce brown copper. If you can produce the green copper and you're audited as being able to be successful at it, you can sell into the higher premium green copper market. And that way it would incentivize like it does in the in the equity world for those producers to make those investments. So it's kind of the same idea, but it's segmenting by the producers who get access to that market, and it reduces some of the audit trail. The third best is the one that you're talking about where we have uh, you know, green copper and, and brown copper. There's a fourth one that, that we've advocated that actually works for oil. Now, the problem with oil is doing that is Copper and aluminum are okay because they don't have large downstream or scope three type of um, emissions. When you get into oil and gas, you have many of those scope three. Like Oxy can produce a green barrel of oil. But what happens as you consume that barrel of oil, who's going to pay those scope three and beyond you know, carbon emission costs? And so the way we've been thinking about it is we do a carbon neutral commodity index where you buy oil, but then you turn around and buy the carbon offsets. So you would buy like EUAs, the, the, the functioning carbon market in Europe as the offset. So I'm thinking about what is tradable. Yeah, we could get to the to the green aluminium. Um, it's working. It's difficult to, to audit. However, one that's real liquid and we can use today is doing the carbon offsets. And we, we've developed what we call the Carbon Neutral Commodity Index, which is a form of the original Goldman Sachs Commodity Index, which is a way to actually trade commodities and do it in an ESG-friendly manner. Let's talk more about how some of these commodities are traded and how the market works. You, you mentioned crude oil a minute ago. The May WTI, uh, West Texas Intermediate Crude Oil Futures Contract, Famously traded all the way to negative $40 a barrel. So you, you, you had to literally pay money to get rid of it because we had a storage problem. I suppose you could make the argument that that was a good thing that the market went to negative $40 because it found a clearing price even to overcome that shortage of storage capacity. So, Jeff, is it a good thing that the market allowed that to happen? 
Or does the fact that a valuable commodity like oil settled somehow at a negative price, which only lasted for that one contract, as soon as we rolled to the next contract, we were back up to positive prices again. Is that a flaw in the design of the system? Does that mean that we need to change the design so that can't happen again? It had nothing to do with the markets themselves. It had everything to do with the pricing location being bottlenecked. As you notice, Brent during that time period did not go negative. It's because it's a waterborne crude. Ships can pull up to Solomvo where Brent prices and leave, and you could move oil in and out freely over the ocean such that you would never create those bottlenecks. In contrast, as you look at where the West Texas contract prices, which is Cushing, Oklahoma, it's landlocked. I like to point out that Brent prices 500 meters from the water, WTI prices 500 miles from the water. And so all those pipelines going up into Cushing, Oklahoma, they became chocker block full and the system basically hit a gridlock. At that point in time, you as a owner of that barrel oil, you have to pay somebody to come in there and take it out. Now, I do think it overshot to the downside at $36 a barrel. You could helicopter that barrel of oil out, which as you point out, didn't last long. But I think it, it is, you know, it, it is a real fundamental price. And we've seen it before. The first time I ever saw it was natural gas amp in Canada during the 90s when you had extreme bottleneck problems with the pipelines in Canada. And I've seen it in power in the 2000s in West Texas when you had so much wind, it couldn't get on the grid and prices of power would go negative. So this is a very common occurrence, but what it's reflective is not a failure in the markets, but rather a failure in the infrastructure around where that pricing point is in the market. Now, I don't want to call it a failure because do you really want to build so much storage that you could avoid this ever happening again? No, it would be too expensive. But I think the key point is a waterborne crew with lots of flexibility would never have this problem. So the solution from a market design standpoint, it sounds like what you're really saying is Cushing, Oklahoma is the wrong delivery point for that contract. It should be Houston instead or something like that. In fact, that's what's happening. There is a Houston WTI contract developing because of that, not in nature. I mean, that in, in the old days, when oil would move up into Cushing, you would just cut the amount of imports that were coming up into Cushing. Now that Cushing is the center of a pricing point in the producing area, it's now has these type of problems that didn't exist before. So yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, you're moving down towards the Gulf Coast for precisely that reason. Jeff, green copper contracts were Robert Friedland's idea, but I want to give you a, a chance to share some of your own ideas. Uh, pretend that you could just cross out everything you know about how commodities are traded, have been traded, how the system works today. Imagine that you're looking at a clean slate to design a better system and forget everything that every IT guy you ever met has told you about what was supposedly impossible. If you were redesigning how commodity trading works and in order to make it better and to better serve market participants, what would you change and why? I think one of the key takeaways, and I like to go back to apartment buildings in New York City, and you have co-op buildings and you have condo buildings. The condo buildings, the apartments in those buildings trade at a premium over the co-op buildings. And the reason why is that the co-op buildings, you have to go up to a board, lots of frictions and restrictions around who can own that apartment. And it takes time to get clearance to who can end up buying that apartment. In contrast, the condo has more optionality. And as a result, it trades at a premium. So let's take that, what we learned from that and apply it to commodity markets. The greater optionality that you provide, 
the bigger the premium for the commodity in that market. It goes back to that point, WTI is kind of like the co-ops in New York City, while Brent is like the condos because it has more flexibility, more optionality, because it is a waterborne contract. So I think the key takeaway here is there's threefold. You want an area that has lots of storage capacity, depending on what we can talk about, you know, storage capacity in terms of, of market design, but you want one that has that kind of flexibility. So Brent has that ability to use ships going in and out. And you want one that has lots of consumers and producers who can meet. If we think about Brent, you have a lot of those North Sea producers, and then you have a lot of the consumers or the refiners sitting down in Europe. Now, the WTI contract has both the producer and the consumer. What it's missing is the optionality and the flexibility of being a landlocked crew. So those are really the, you know, the three requirements. One, substantial number of producers in the area. Two, a substantial number of consumers in the area. And then three is that you know, it has a substantial amount of optionality in terms of delivery. And so if you put those three criteria together, you end up with very successful markets. And I think the Brent market is one that's going to have longevity and has proved itself, you know, the test of time of being a very successful commodity market. And then the LME too, also a very successful commodity market because it has flexibility and deliverability. Jeff, one of the thoughts that I've had is futures markets that settle with physical delivery assure that the price discovery in the market is directly connected to real-world prices. It's, it's really hard to cheat that system. But something I've noticed is that cash-settled futures contracts that are settled based on an index that somebody potentially could manipulate, that's more uh, vulnerable to manipulation. And of course, the the famous London gold fix uh, taught us that about indexed pricing years and years ago. So should futures markets be designed to favor settlement, always having the option of standing for physical delivery for the purpose, not, not just of making it possible to buy things with physical delivery, but for the purpose of keeping the price discovery honest? Or, or maybe you've got a better way you can think of to keep price discovery honest. What's, what's the best thing that we could do to improve the markets to reduce the risk of market manipulation? Whether it's physically settled or index settled, I don't think is, is as important as the design of the market structure. And let's go back to what I say in the LME being a great example of a very successful market structure that stand at the test of time going back to 1788. And to understand why it was so successful, I want to go to the following observation. Metals are very expensive to transport, but very cheap to store. In contrast, energy is very cheap to transport but very expensive to store. It's the opposite of metals. And let's take power. It's infinity. You can't store it. You know, battery technology at its best can give you maybe 48 hours of storage. And when we think about, you know, the transportation of, of electricity, it's very quick. It's, you know, instantaneous. So if you think about it in that context, and now let's go back to the brilliance of the LME contract, is they realized that moving it around the world was extremely expensive, but storing it was cheap. And so we have LME warehouses all over the world. And you can think about that contract that trades in London, the area it used to, now it's in Hong Kong, but the LME contract was one where it didn't actually settle to any particular 
location anywhere in the world. Instead, it's settled as a index to a physical delivery, the premium to get it into one of those warehouses somewhere in the world. In fact, the one it would be connected to somewhere in the world was the one where they came up with you know, the market of last resort. Now, the importance of this is that they were able, and this is back at the 1788, and the reason why the three-month contract in, in metals is the dominant one, it would take three months to sail a ship from Chile to London. By doing this, this contract is you could produce this in Chile, store it somewhere in the world, but still price it in London because, again, it overcomes the expense of moving that copper around, but instead take advantage of the cheapness of store. Now we go back to WTI. Again, it's one of these markets where it is very expensive to store, which is why it went negative, but very cheap to move. And so when we think about what happened when we went negative is that you plugged up the ability to cheaply move it around Oklahoma because the pipeline's bottlenecked. So when we think about the design of those energy contracts or power, they need to be what we call locational markets. So we think about the LME in some of the agriculture markets, they're called what we call warehouse markets because they're cheap to store, expensive to transport. The locational markets, they are expensive to store, but cheap to transport. And so we take Brent. Brent is an index cash settled. WTI is a physical settled. That difference is not so important as the ability to make those contracts locational. And by the way, we have seen aluminum contracts like the COMEX flirt with the idea of having locational contracts. They don't do very well. And, you know, similarly, we've seen some of the energy contracts flirt with being warehouse contracts. They don't do well. So it's identifying that relative value between being how cheap it is to store it versus how cheap it is to transport it. And if it's more expensive to transport it, you want to put it in a warehouse type of system. If it's cheaper to transport it, you want to put it into a locational type market. I think that that difference and understanding those differentials are far more important than whether if it's cash settled or physically settled. Now, that concept you're describing of a warehouse market, one of the things that's on the design table right now is expanding on that by replacing those warehouse receipts with digital tokens. So using distributed ledger technology to create fungible digital tokens, where what you get when you buy that gold contract is a digital token, which is exchangeable for 100 ounces of gold or whatever the the contract specification is. But the point is, it's a digital token that is fungible and can be traded anywhere in the world for that. And of course, there might be localized premiums or discounts compared to some reference location, but it's always possible to convert that digital token. What are your reactions to that idea in terms of how we could advance these markets? I think it's one of the best uses of the blockchain technology out there. You know, I'm not a big fan of Bitcoin itself. I think the crypto nature makes it a very difficult investment vehicle. But the blockchain technologies are revolutionary that come out of the Bitcoin technology. And I think one thing it allows, it allows you to have that structure very similar to the warehouse structure that the LME created, you know, back to 1788 which allows you to take advantage of those relative differentials between the cost of storage versus the cost of transportation. And gold, I think, would be an excellent example of being able to take advantage of this because gold 
very expensive to move around the world, but incredibly cheap to store. So you could even concentrate more and more of the gold in you know, single areas where you were actually storing it, but then be able to price more locations using these blockchain technologies. And then you also have the ability to you know, keep that ownership of that gold you know, very well defined and you know, deal with the custodial arrangements that are critical to keeping a functioning gold market. Let's tie this concept back to what we discussed about what happened to that May WTI futures contract in crude oil. Now, that's a locational market, not a warehouse market. But suppose we extended that same design where when you buy, instead of getting a thousand barrels of crude oil for delivery in Cushing, Oklahoma, which has to go physically into a pipeline or a tank in Cushing, suppose that the contract specification when you buy that futures contract is what you're getting is not a thousand barrels of oil, but a thousand digital tokens which are each redeemable for one barrel of oil fungibly anywhere in the world. Now, presumably, you'd still have to have a reference location because you'd have to allow for localized pricing of discounts or premiums, uh, I would think. Is that locational type of market also a candidate for tokenizing or are there different challenges there? Very different challenge. It goes back to that whole point that you know that the storage is the really difficult problem with energy and, and power in the different locational markets, which is why they ended up with that structure. In contrast, you know, when you take the metals, they're very cheap to store, which is why you can pile up all of the the metal in one location. And the advantage that this blockchain type technology allows allows you to have more locational pricing points for something that's very expensive to move around. So it goes, it goes back to that point. If you have, think about, you know, the blockchain technology, it's power itself. So you just be moving the power. It's, you know, so oil, gas, and power, the constraint is around storage, not moving it around. And what that blockchain technology allows is to reduce the cost of transacting around distances. So by creating an environment in which you've now reduced that cost of transportation, which is essentially what it does, it benefits those commodities which have the higher cost of transportation, which are going to be the more bulky ones, the metals and gold and so forth, or even agriculture. I want to ask you how ready you think the industry is for the kind of stuff that we're starting to talk about. Because something I noticed, I, I'm in my first career, I was a software entrepreneur. And in the late 90s, we had Wall Street guys show up in Silicon Valley. We could spot them by the way they dressed. And, you know, they're throwing all this lingo around. They obviously had no idea what they were talking about with respect to e-commerce and so forth. But they wanted to buy our companies from us. And I ended up selling my company to one of them. A few years later, after the, the dot-com bubble and burst, we had the next round where people realized, well, wait, all of those concepts of the internet is going to change the world were exactly spot on. The way that I perceive the experience that we've had with distributed ledger technology, the, the, the technology that underpins these cryptocurrencies, is at first there were a whole bunch of people saying, okay, not so much Bitcoin, but the underlying distributed ledger technology, the blockchain system seemed to have a lot of appeal, but it felt to me like that late 90s, you know, a whole bunch of people in finance going blockchain technology, blockchain technology. They didn't really know what they were talking about. It feels to me like we're finally at that moment where the people that are doing things in finance with distributed ledger technology do know what they're talking about. We're into the early 2000s, no longer into the late 90s, where the people that are working with this really have solid ideas and know what they're doing. My question to you is, 
is the market ready for it? Uh, are people that are, have been used to, you know, it's not that many years ago that we got away from ex-athletes screaming at each other in commodity pits to trade commodities. Are we ready for trading digital tokens? Do you think the market is ready to start to embrace that kind of change? No, absolutely. It's going to substantially reduce costs in in you know, banks and in, in the trading community. And you look at you know the back office functioning. You know, it's pretty archaic still at this point in time. So by introducing these technologies, they're going to be able to substantially reduce the costs of these activities. You know, when we look at what e-commerce did, is you know ultimately part of those deflationary pressures that we saw in the two thousands and you know the two thousands ten. A lot of it was you know, you're scaling up that e-commerce, which starts to take out the margins and create a lower cost to purchasing goods and and you know, being able to deliver them into people's houses. So you can think the same thing is going to happen here with you think about ultimately what these technologies do they're they're low in the cost of verification and as uh, that's going to be deflationary in the industry and take out some of the margins but i definitely think we're going to get there very similar as kind of you can think about you know it's probably going to have it probably be faster than what we saw with e-commerce but i think you know is is it ready yes and we're definitely moving that direction but one thing to keep in mind you know it's just going to further take out the margins within the trading of commodities and other types of assets Jeff, beyond the ideas that we've already discussed, as you envision this future of smarter markets, more efficient markets, better embracement of technology to make markets work better, what else can you think of in terms of maybe uh, challenges that we need to figure out how to overcome or problems that we need to solve? What if if you were kind of giving the... uh, let's say, the the inspirational speech at the conference of people that are going to design smarter markets, what would you tell them the priorities are to focus on in order to make the commodity marketplace better than it is today? First and foremost is we need a carbon price. And to get a carbon price, you need to have rules put in place that are allow people to engage in trying to solve climate change. Because if we had a carbon price, we don't need to, it becomes much easier to create a you know green aluminum contract or a brown aluminum contract. So that is by far the most important. The problem though, it's not something that the industry can do. It requires the two largest emitters in the world, the Chinese and the Americans, to embrace this problem and start to create workable solutions and workable rules that then would allow a functioning carbon market. And a, you know, a very good starting point would be a carbon tax. But I think you know, even there, you were moving in the right direction. And I think the core problem with trying to trade commodities who sit in the center of this whole climate change problem is that there is not an efficient way to price carbon. And if we had an efficient way to price carbon, then you can incentivize the investment in the technologies to create the abatement of the carbon. So that, I think, sits center in terms of market design. The market design, again, what I was saying before, investing in EVs is really risky because we don't know know, what type of technology is going to be the one that solves climate change. Equally, making investments in certain types of market design without a well-defined how we're going to approach the pricing of carbon makes it very difficult to be able to define what a perfect market structure looks like. So I would argue that what sits at the center of commodity markets, because remember, commodity markets sit at the center of the climate change problem, we need to have functioning carbon markets. Even if, if it's not a 
you know, the type of carbon market like we saw with the sulfur market. It's just at least something we can use as a reference point to figure out how to design these. Because it goes back to designing a a green copper market, how if you know how carbon is being priced, is a lot more easier to do than what we're faced with today. Let me just make sure that I understand what you mean by a carbon price in this context, because as a, as a software architect, it's a fascinating problem to me. It sounds like, you know, we're not talking about pricing carbon to buy and sell carbon. What we're talking about is if I want to buy 27 futures contracts for copper and stand for physical delivery, ideally, the trading system should be able to look at who's on the other side of that trade, who is selling those. There is some kind of database or, or, or visibility that the system has into the production statistics of whether they're using hydropower or diesel power or what have you. And we know how much carbon was emitted into the atmosphere in order to produce those 27 contracts worth of, uh, of carbon futures that I'm going to accept delivery of. And the system knows, okay, if there's going to be a tax or if you have to buy a carbon credit, it knows exactly how much carbon got consumed by that particular producer. And there's immediate visibility. So as I'm looking at the pricing in the market, I can see what the, the price is. And I can also see what the associated carbon cost is that I might have to pay a tax on or I might have to buy a credit against and so forth. Right. I think that's, that's exactly the, the key point here is you actually don't need to have a green carbon or copper market and a brown copper market if you have a functioning carbon price, which is why I make investing in all of the market apparatus to create a green carbon price is risky business. If all of a sudden the Americans change their mind like they did with the sulfur issue back in 1979 and create a functioning carbon market, then all of that's out the door because now it's internalized into the price of copper. I think that is the key point. If we just had that, just like how you have the, you know, we had a sulfur market that internalized that price of creating sulfur, you know, whether it was, you know, somebody driving their car, they paid for the catalytic converter that went into their car to solve the problem, you know, or it was, you know, some refinery producing low sulfur diesel. The point being, it was correctly priced in the system. And that's what the world is missing right now is a functioning way to be able to internalize the cost of emitting carbon. And if we have that as a well-defined pricing mechanism, then the rest of it follows very easily. And I think one of the key reasons that the world's trying to do this around ESG is that we don't have that well-defined rules and regulations that have be able to create that carbon price. And so that's why I think you're spot on if the carbon price was there, it would already be internalized into that producer that's producing that metric ton of copper. I want to go back to what you said a minute ago, Jeff, about how the first step has to be for the Americans and the Chinese to get together. Because it seems to me, and maybe this is just, you know, software guy thinking, it seems to me that the way to solve this problem is for somebody to build that market system that we just talked about and say to both of the American and Chinese governments, look, here's your implementation tool. All you have to do is agree on parameters. And now you've got the technology that you need in order to implement policy to solve these problems. Is that the right way to approach it? Or do you think that it has to be driven as policy first? It is 100% politics. And it's very difficult politics. You know, whether if it is in France, which you know, the Europeans are leading the way on, on climate change, even in France, you have the, the, the yellow jackets, 
and the gilets jaunes that are very much opposed to even a 15% rise in petroleum taxes. So when we think about trying to deal with this, whether if it's in the U.S. or particularly India and China, if all of a sudden we go out and we put a $50 a ton carbon tax on the price of using all types of carbon emitting um, commodities, then it's going to be very expensive for everyone in the world to drive their car around, to be able to heat their homes, to eat beef or whatever it might be that is a carbon emitting type process or a greenhouse emitting type process. So, you know, that politics, I mean, solving it's pretty easy. I think you and I could figure out how to solve it. Oh, so we just put a, let's put a tax on carbon immediately and let's see what it does in terms of the amount being emitted. You know, people think that that number is $25 a ton. You know, we think it's substantially higher than that. It could be as high as $200 a ton to start to solve this problem. The problem is, is that you start to put in on that, it starts to raise the price to every single human being on the planet Earth to be able to use these fuels. And you think someplace like India, you know, that's an emerging market, they look up, you know, the Europeans and the Americans, they had that opportunity to drive that car, heat their house, to, you know, have that refrigerator, whatever it might be that emitted all those carbon emissions. Historically, then the Chinese got to do it over the previous decade. You know, these emerging markets that have not yet to get to do it they're going to go why why can't we do it so it's really one of policy and politics than it is of market design because the market design is pretty straightforward here the politics are incredibly difficult let's broaden this and talk a little bit more about esg goals in general because the way i see this i feel that the esg trend is is the the most welcome and wonderful thing to ever happen finally we're going to see people with capital take some responsibility for being responsible with it and make the world a better place i'm all for that but frankly i don't think in the infancy which is where i think we are now of this esg trend i don't think that we're really achieving very much to accomplish the goal of ESG because you, you look at the way ESG funds invest. It's like, okay, let's invest in Tesla because it's green. Well, wait a minute. Investing in Tesla and other EV companies doesn't do anything to make the environment actually better. What would make the environment better is if you selectively invested in commodity producers that are responsible and you know didn't invest in the ones that are leaving environmental disasters behind and exploiting child labor and so forth. But we don't really have visibility to know those things. So is there a way that we can make the market smarter so that people who want to invest in ESG can actually achieve the goals of ESG rather than just feeling good about it, which frankly is where I think we stand today? The reason why we're going down this ESG avenue is simply because we don't have government level rules and regulations around that are standardized around the world in which to deal with this problem. And let's take tobacco. You just put a tax on it. Voila, problem solved. So it's not like, you know, this is a difficult problem to solve. The politics of creating that carbon price are the ones that are incredibly difficult, which is why we don't have one. I think you're spot on in terms of, you know, the gains that the world has made in terms of, you know, the the goals of reducing emissions through ESG investing are pretty minimal. Where we've seen the gains, the, the, the economics stand on their own two feet, like solar and wind. Those are two areas where we've seen significant inroads. And when we look at the cost, you know, it's been driven down. It did need the subsidy. So I'm not going to deny the importance of the the subsidies of doing there. But it was, you know, we paid the taxes. 
as you know, citizens of the world to create the subsidies that then helped fuel the investment into solar and wind such that now it's competitive with natural gas and other types of sources for electricity. So it can be done and we can get there. But I think the key point there is that the economics of those investments stand on their own two feet. And, you know, the question is, is take Tesla's, you know, they're still very expensive for the most of the people in the world. They cannot afford one. You know, the hope is that they'll be able to get the cost down like they did with solar and wind. But I want to emphasize the battery technology is far more difficult than than solar and wind. And I don't want to make any, you know, it's significant. I don't, I'm not saying it can't happen or say it will happen. It's still uncertain. But I think the key point here is that when we think about, you know, how do you solve these problems? I think a tobacco is a great example of, you know, what happened there is that you ultimately saw, you know, regulation come in, put a tax on tobacco. It was very difficult for for the industry to adjust, but it did adjust and we saw behaviors adjust and, you know, and we've seen a significant improvement in the health of the society because of that. So you can get there. The problem though is taxing transportation to get somebody to work is a lot more difficult than taxing cigarettes. And I think, the, again, that really boils down to really what the crux of the problem is and why we're so far away of having a workable solution. Jeff, final question. I'm sure a lot of people listening to this are commodities traders or uh, other finance professionals that work around commodities that are kind of used to the way things have worked for a long time. Why does this all need to change? Why are we talking about smarter markets changing the market? Is it really necessary that the marketplace change? And what are the costs of ignoring the oncoming change that you and I both see? Well, for one, you know, reducing, you know, the cost of trading, transacting and moving commodities around the world should always be a goal. It's just going to create a more efficient society. So creating smarter markets, I think, is critical from that perspective. But then let's put it in the context of, you know, climate change, creating market solutions around dealing with, you know, an existential issue like that. You know, we've just went through COVID. You know, COVID was a global pandemic. And we know that these types of events can happen and have a substantial impact on economic wealth and on economic activity around the world. So by creating an environment in which we can accurately price carbon and create solutions to climate change, I think is critical in terms of thinking about the economic well-being and the ability for societies to grow on a forward-going basis. You know, particularly when we think about, you know, the emerging markets that have not had the opportunity as the developed markets to, you know, enjoy the benefits of, of carbon emissions. So having a way to create efficient solutions to this thing, I think, is critical to the existence and the well-being of um, you know, the global economy. Jeff, thanks so much for giving us a terrific interview. I look forward to having you back again, both here on Smarter Markets and also on my Macro Voices podcast. Listeners, I have to tell you that our first three guests have surprised me. As both a former software technologist and a professional commodity futures trader, it's clear to me that commodity markets themselves can and should be redesigned to embrace distributed ledger technology, what some people call blockchain technology, to create a fully tokenized commodities market. But quite frankly, I didn't expect the market to be ready for it. I figured that people in the commodities industry would see these things as vague, pie-in-the-sky ideas they might not understand. But to my own great surprise, they're not only ready for it, they're rather insistent that it's overdue. 
Robert Friedland was talking about blockchain in the first episode before I could even bring it up. Mariam Ayati explained a vision for an entirely tokenized raw materials supply chain. I agree wholeheartedly with that vision, but to be honest, I never expected to hear it from a decade-plus veteran of the oil and gas industry. And now in this episode, Jeff Curry is telling us he thinks that tokenization of commodities markets is arguably the best application of distributed ledger technology. And Jeff even went so far as to imply that not only is the market ready for such change, but that he actually thinks it's overdue. These first three interviews have changed my own understanding of this marketplace. At first, I assumed it would be a challenge to teach old dogs new tricks and introduce leading-edge technology to a very old and well-established marketplace. But now that I realize that the market is not only ready but excitedly awaiting this kind of change, I think it's time to start talking about how these things would actually work in more detail than we have so far. So my guest next week will be Tom McMahon. Tom is a veteran of commodity trading, and he's also a veteran builder of commodity trading markets. He was one of the designers of the Henry Hub natural gas contract, and he helped to design the NYMEX exchange. I want to ask Tom some tough questions. What will it take to build a commodity futures exchange that delivers on the vision Robert Friedland, Maria Mayotte, and Jeff Curry have shared with us in these first three episodes? Will it be built on top of one of the existing blockchain-based ledger architectures, or will they consider a permissioned ledger architecture to avoid the performance limitations of blockchain? And how will they begin to incrementally deliver change that ultimately leads to the realization of the vision that Robert, Mariam, and Jeff have shared with us? That's coming up next week on Smarter Markets. Listeners, please help us get the word out about Smarter Markets. It's not every day you come across a podcast with guests of the caliber of Jeff Curry, Mariam Ayati, and Robert Friedland. And we have a veritable who's who of industry legends lined up for interviews in coming weeks. Your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts and other podcast platforms mean the world to us, as does your help in spreading the word about Smarter Markets via word of mouth. For the Macro Voices Podcast Network, I'm Eric Townsend. See you again next week for another installment of Smarter Markets. That concludes this week's episode of Smarter Markets. For free episode transcripts, visit smartermarketspod.com. Smarter Markets is 100% listener-driven, so please help more people discover the podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Smarter Markets is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Smarter Markets should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed on Smarter Markets are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or sponsors. Smarter Markets, its producers, sponsors, and hosts, Eric Townsend and Abex Technologies, shall not be liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on information or viewpoints presented on Smarter Markets.